0: Hey friends, welcome to Garden Church Podcast. This is a series called Jesus People. We are looking at who Jesus is and how we become more like Him. Jesus People are God's strategy for transforming the world. We hope you enjoy this podcast. For more information, go to garden.church. In 1986, Neil Postman published an influential cultural essay titled Amusing Ourselves to Death. He argued that personal freedoms would disappear not when a totalitarian government imposed oppression from the outside like George Orwell pictured in his book, 1984, but rather when people came to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think like Aldous Huxley's depicted in Brave New World. He quotes, this is from his book, uh, his essay, which became a book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He says, what Orwell in 1984 feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley, Brave New World, feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared... Those who would deprive us of information, Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egotism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us, Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture, Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies. Huxley noted later in a later book, he mentioned by Postman, uh, sorry, Postman mentioned that we have failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. These dystopian narratives have captured our imagination for years. And since 2015, I have preached steadily against the dangers of social media, technology shaping and forming our imagination, our worldview, our behaviors, and lifestyles formed by our current culture. As culture moves forward and we face more and more obstacles as the people of God, I've never felt more, a more sense of urgency for a central component that all of us need to take seriously in this Christian faith if we will be a disciple of Jesus. And that is the role of scripture. Now where you want to check out right now, where you want to find a a mental break from this talk, or be distracted by your phone, I must say uh, there is a very startling conviction that Jesus brings in regards to what he thinks of Scripture. And I'm going to summarize it, and I'll go there in a second in Matthew. But this is the point of my sermon. There is a direct connection between how we treat the Scriptures and how we experience the kingdom of God. Let me say it another way. There is a direct connection between how you treat scripture and how you will experience eternal life. A little more threatening. I'm not here to mix words, I'm not here because I want to just fill a Sunday. I'm here with a sense of urgency of mission. I've never felt a more pressing crisis and I feel it for all of the church, but especially the next generation. The next generation is going to lose any sense of biblical worldview. We must learn as disciples of Jesus in our series, The Jesus People, what we see what we've been teaching on is the ministry of Jesus, the themes of his ministry. We've been teaching about the lifestyle habits and practices of Jesus and the attributes of God. All of these things must form our imagination, must form our habits and lifestyle practices so that we might be Jesus people. We might be disciples of Jesus. Jesus Preached the kingdom of God. He talked about the kingdom more than anything else. We've talked about that. What he did was he healed the sick and casted out demons. We've talked about that. But do you know that of the recordings of his teachings, 10% of his his spoken word recorded in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were Old Testament quotations. 10% of the words recorded that Jesus spoke were in reference to the Old Testament. The Old Testament had 350 prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus. The Bible matters. We must have a biblical worldview. All of you have a worldview a paradigm, a lens through which you look out to the world. And that worldview is shaped by all sorts of things. It is formed by your family, your cultural background, where you physically grew up, where you currently live, the information that you digest, whether you stream Netflix or social media or what news app you download and watch, all of that has a bias that shapes your worldview. You're shaped by the perspective. Your paradigm is the product of advertisement and streaming services. And there's a current crisis we face as disciples, and it's a crisis of biblical authority. All of the issues we debate in the church and outside of the church are all brought together through the one thing, and that has to do with how you view and treat scripture. Your perspective of scripture shapes all of your decisions, whether you know this or not. So whether you hold the authority of scripture or not will determine your view on moral or ethical issues or political issues we face as a church, as a Christian. The sociologist Charles Taylor said, we move from a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity. And what he means by that is at one point, people would behave a certain way based on the institution of the church, based on the moral authority of scripture, based on tradition for for tradition's sake, but we've moved from authority to authenticity, meaning your feelings, your individual (coughs) expressed self is the highest form of authority in the land. And so whatever you feel about yourself, whatever you think about yourself, whatever your peers say about you shapes the authority you believe about the world. So we have an anti-authoritarian society and culture In our midst. And we want people to legislate powerful decisions for all of society based on our individual ideas. And that's how we enforce our individual self expression. More and more, the idea of living under the authority of Scripture is borderline absurd and crazy. In a culture that defines freedom as our self expression, if as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, we live in a cultural moment where our inner worlds are being shaped by godlike technology, <clears throat> where algorithms and AI and platforms are used to shape our worldview, but also our behaviors. They're getting to move us in a, partic- a particular direction and it's normalizing crazy. I said normalizing crazy. First Timothy puts it this way, if you have a Bible, I'm going to take time for you today. Would you go to 1 Timothy chapter 4? We'll look at verse 1. <clears throat> 11 o'clock, how are we doing? <clears throat> I love it. Let's go. That's the kind of Bible study I want. It says, this is Paul writing to Timothy. Paul is the apostle writing to a young apostle in training who took over the church in Ephesus. He's in Ephesus, which was, we know, a very pagan context with lots of different worldviews. And he says to Timothy in chapter four, he says, the spirit, Holy Spirit, clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come, come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Mm. That's not your secret friendly text for the day. But it's true. We live in a moment where we think all, all truth is equally weighted. But there is one truth, and it is the person of Jesus Christ. And even 2,000-something years ago, a little less than that, Paul had the foresight through the prompting of the Holy Spirit to write revelation in the Scripture to say, there will be times when people will teach things that are taught from demons. I know this is hard to hear. Some of you want to get up and leave. Go ahead. We are in a crisis where we think because it's said it on TikTok it's true. And we are being formed by so many biased agendas that we don't know as the people of God the difference between false information and truth, the difference between biblical revelation and morality and cultural norm. Paul is saying exactly what's happening. Our culture will claim truth to us about identity, about sexuality, about marriage, about morality and ethics, about where life begins, about what matters in the world. And they will not only tell you about the moral impetus of these things and the cur- they'll give you courage to fix the problem through systems. And then at the same time, we're shocked when the information that we digest is filled with all sorts of false statements where when the crisis in Israel and Palestine continued a couple of weeks ago in a very startling terrorist attack, there were in moments false images and videos of previous oppositions in war thrusted into the ecosystem of social media where we had empathy for various people when it was false images from previous wars. But we don't know the difference because AI can generate stuff now. People can say one thing and we don't have a clue to, dis- to take information in the world and culturally discern with the Spirit of God what's true and what's not. Because we're swimming in formation of culture and we don't have time to swim in the Word of God. What is the solution to the crisis? The solution is to live scripture. It's to live scripture. It's not to take a couple of passages and read it once in a while or nail it onto the door or print a picture and have it. Oh, we're a Christian family. We've got that in verse over there. It's to immerse yourself in the real thing so that when you touch the imitation, you don't even need to look at it. You feel the difference like bank tellers and people who deal with fraud, fraudulent, um, uh, bills. They, they just immerse themselves in the real so they can smell the difference. It doesn't even have to come to their hands. They can see it a mile away. This is what we need because what you see is Jesus was a man of scripture. Jesus was immersed in the biblical narrative If you read the text, you see that he himself, when tempted by the devil, think about this. Jesus, baptized by the Holy Spirit, baptized in the river Jordan, goes out to be tested for 40 days. He doesn't eat. The devil comes to him, tempts him. What does he do to face his temptation? He quotes scripture back. When the devil says your vocational mission could be accomplished in a moment, all you gotta do is worship me. And the thing that you've come to do to restore the kingdoms of the earth back to their original place can happen without the suffering of a cross. The devil tempts him to give him the outcome of what he had come for. Just, you don't have to go through the cross. Shortcut to the ministry. He quotes scripture. When religious leaders begin to confront him With distortions of the Old Testament, he takes scripture and brings it into clarity. When he (coughs) sees the corruption of the temple and he flips the tables, he doesn't quote the prophets of the day. He quotes the scriptures of God. Jesus is a man of scripture. He memorized scripture. He read scripture. He lived scripture. He embodied scripture for that very reason alone. If you are a disciple of Jesus, there's no no form of Christianity today. There's no biblical form of Christianity that's a cultural Christian like we see today in the church. There's no like Sunday Christian. You are either all in and baptized or you're not. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you are becoming like him. You got to be immersed in the scriptures. You got to read Scripture. You got to memorize. You got to, that's all what we're going after. So how you treat scripture impacts your eternity. I'm gonna prove it to you. You're like, what? Where's that? Matthew chapter five. Go to your Bibles. I know you brought them in. Some of you had to take a dolly to get your Bible here. It's so big. <clears throat> Matthew five. Let's go to the Sermon on the Mount. I see the crossed arms. I see the, prove it to me, Pastor Darren. You're, you look younger than you really are. I see all, I'm, I'm 39. You're like, he's not older than, I know I look young from this. I'm 39. How can he preach with so, such confidence? Because the spirit of God has been warning me for years. And more than anything, I'm afraid for the next generation. I feel this urgent mission because my boy's nine and, and my other boy's six. And what I see them being handed terrifies me in the church. So this is for their sake. And all y'all who have little ones who want to see a move of God in our nation and in the West, it starts with you you and how you treat the scriptures. Matthew 5, you ready? 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, Jesus did not have the Bible as we have it today. When he says the law or the prophets, I want you to think the scriptures. So when he's quoting, though, he's saying the books of Moses, the Torah, the first and second Samuel, some of the Kings, some of the, some Chronicles, the Proverbs and Psalms, and then the prophets We're referring to the Old Testament. He's saying, do not think I have come to get rid of, to dismantle, to tear down or destroy this building or institution or a first century context for abolish was a technical term to disobey or disrespect something about the life of Jesus was so controversial, he had to disclaim his ministry to the religious folks. I know you see me hanging out with these sinners. I know you see me breaking your oral tradition. He doesn't break the Old Testament traditions, the 613. He's breaking the Pharisees, the additions that were part of the oral tradition, not part of the Torah. He says, I've not come to abolish the law, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to accomplish, to see them happen, to be fulfilled, to come to pass. And then he says, for truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Bruner, Frederick Dale Bruner says, not one dot of an I, not one cross of a T will drop out of the law. Nothing will be missed. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great, and the kingdom of heaven. Okay, therefore, that's Jesus' way way of saying, here's my point, anyone who relaxes or loosens one of these commands, now what command is he talking about? Old Testament? Or we're in the Sermon on the Mount, he's about to go, hey, you have heard it said, thou shall not murder, but I say, don't be angry. You have heard it said don't commit adultery, but I say don't lust. So he takes the Old Testament commands and he takes them as a legal like, uh, fence to not commit a sin and makes them a condition of the heart. Goes further. What's he referring to, the 613 commands of the Old Testament or his New Testament uh, pr- uh, explanation of the, the heart of the law of those commands and all the commands he gives in the New Testament? What do you think it is? You're right, it's both. I'll answer it for you. Scholars is saying he's referring to the Old Testament and his yoke would be the rabbinic way of talking about his teaching. His interpretation of the Torah, which would be a rabbinic, the rabbinic phrase for a rabbi's teaching would be his yoke, his interpretation of the Torah. So Jesus is saying, if you loosen one of my commands, you will be least in the kingdom of heaven. If you loosen and teach, but if you practice, you, you get them inside of you, into, into, the, into the bones of your soul, and then you teach others to do the same, you will be called great. There it is. How you treat scripture is connected to your experience with the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, eternal life. Kingdom of heaven, Matthew's variation of the kingdom of God, God's rule reign, what his effective will, the, the space in the sphere where God's reality is lived and experienced. John's version of this is eternal life, Zoe life. There you go. All three matter. You with me? Now let's think about this for a moment. What are the commands that Jesus talks about? It's quite a bit, right? How you treat these commands impact your experience with the kingdom of God. So that's that requires us to look at Scripture intentionally. He wants us to treat Scripture the way He treats Scripture. So He'll go on to interpret Scripture and He'll say, hey, don't worry, don't be anxious, love your neighbor, yada, yada, yada. The point simply I wanna make is that you can't dismiss the truth that Jesus expects his followers to align their lives to God's holy way through honoring the scriptures. Why is this so controversial? If you shrug off the Bible, you'll be the least. If you devote yourself, to following the way of Jesus and embodying the scriptures that he teaches, you'll be great. Now some will take that and be like, okay, I know what I gotta do. I just gotta read scripture all the time. Just gotta read, 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 read. That's not what he's saying, all right? That's re- too, re- it's reducing what Jesus is after. Cause actually he goes on in verse 20, he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa, what? That's confusing. You just talked about blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And then you go down to like, now my righteousness, like blessed are those that don't have a spiritual bone in their body. Happy. If you were here last week, happy are those who hunger for righteousness because you're in a situation that's full of injustice and you need God's provisional justice to come in. Happy are you. But now you say, in the kingdom, my righteousness, my character, my inner being has to be greater than Mother Teresa, Dallas Willard, and Pope Francis combined. (laughs) What? So to get in doesn't cost me anything. But to really get the kingdom costs everything. And how you treat scripture matters. So is it about just reading the Bible? Of course not. It's about the scriptures permeating in your inner being so that it overflows. So when the cross comes to you and that nail pierces your wrist, you can't help but quote the text from Psalms, Father, forgive them. You can't help but respond out of the character of Christ, which is saturated with the scriptures in your imagination. You're like, oh, I'll never get there. You might be in a situation where you'll be tempted tonight as you scroll mindlessly and rather than respond in a reaction to temptation, you quiet your soul and you've resisted through the word of God. Do you see? Do you feel it? It's not just my urgency as a preacher, but as a fellow disciple of Jesus, we need to wake up to what's happening all around us. You aren't. What you feel. Your truest self is not what you've come to think. It's who he says it is. And so as a as a church, we want to learn to honor the word of God. I'll talk about that in a second. But Jesus is saying you enter the kingdom, you can't just obey the rules of the Bible. You need the ideas of the Bible to seep into your heart so it transforms you into a new person. So in order to do that, we at the church, we don't just preach the word, we don't just read the word, we live the word of God. One author says, for believers to follow Jesus implies, among other things, adopting the same attitude towards God's word as Jesus had. Simply put, we cannot truthfully uh, truthfully say that we are followers of Jesus if we neglect or refuse to obey God what the Bible tells us. Why should we read scripture? Well, let me, let me, let me tell you something that N.T. Wright says. He says, scripture not only gives us true information about how our lives can be transformed, it will itself be a part of the process. We read scripture for transformation that scriptures themselves are part of how we experience the life that God desires us to live in the first place. John chapter five, would you go there in your, in your Bibles? John chapter five, verse 39, such an important word because it challenges both sides, those who neglect the scriptures and those who have loved the scriptures but haven't practiced them. John chapter five, verse 39 says this, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus says scriptures testify of him. The scriptures point to Jesus. And Jesus is why we read scripture. We read scripture for an encounter with the living God. And if you really do read scripture and you let scripture read you, it will lead you to an encounter with Jesus. So we study for encounter. we read for encounter. we follow a living God who lives in the text and speaks through the text and testifies about himself in the text. and when we read, we are transformed. John 8:31, same book, a couple passages away, a couple chapters from five, says to the Jews who had, been, uh, who had believed him, listen to what he says, "If you hold to my teaching." you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Good feelings will not set you free. Cool worship environments will not set you free. Without the knowledge of truth in Christ, you cannot be set free. And some contexts, in our, my experience, we want the power of the spirit without the truth of the spirit. This is the danger of the spirit, the charismatic movement. We can proclaim the power of God without living in the truth of Christ. We want to see the signs without the cross. We come expecting to be zapped from our our problems in the spirit rather than be invited into a process of discipleship to see that temper come into self-control over a lifetime or that addiction be released one waking moment at a time in partnership and grace with the Holy Spirit. That they coexist. But in the scriptures, what we see is Jesus says there is truth. And in a culture that thinks experience is equally valid to the authority of scripture, we say, no, it is not. When culture says, this is the liberating thing, we see actually there is a created order and that requires limitation of freedom. You didn't realize how hard this was, huh? This is why every issue comes back to how you interpret scripture and how you treat it. Everything you deal with comes back to your view and your interpretation of scripture. Whew, I, I feel it today. 11 o'clock, this is the blessed service. I know that for a fact. Because <laughs> there there's the nine o'clock, I do a lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> the 11 o'clock, some, the, it's like the Lord, and I, I mean this experientially for me, he just turns on a knob. And it's like, I'm, it preaches itself at times. And that is all Jesus. I'm saying this going, he wants you 11 o'clock to hear this right now. We want to live the word of God. And what happens in my experience in the church is we love that idea, but then we get to scripture and it challenges our belief system. I don't like this part of it. (laughs) Marriages. I love what happens when I do marriage counseling and like do premarital. Husbands are like, get to that part where it talks about wives submit to your husbands. I'm like, great, yeah, let's get to that part. Ephesians 5 Verse 21, you know, hey, by the way, that word submit's not in the original Greek. It's missing in that chapter break, just so you know, because it's, the the verb happens before where it it says, uh, it says essentially, um, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. That's how it reads in the Greek. And all the men are like, wait, what? Time out. Yes, wives, you should 100% submit to your, your husband's. And it's mutual submission is a, is a biblical word. It's, it comes from a military phrase of if a general is wanting some soldiers, he would call them to submit and the soldiers would have to decide if they would be willingly to put their well-being under the leadership of the general. So they want to know what's their track record like? How are they leading? Do they? Is there going to be food? Are we going to have a good uh, match against the other guys? Like, And if they decided, great, I'll put my well-being under your leadership. And then, and then Paul does something absolutely bonkers. And it haunts me To today as I walked out the stairs, not having a bad interaction with my wife, just having an interaction. And as I'm leaving to get to prayer, which I missed, I hear the Lord speak to me, Ephesians 5, not verse 21. Pastor Bill said in our marriage counseling, husband, Darren, get rid of that verse out of your Bible. You have a powerful woman you've married. Don't Put this on her. Instead, look to the next. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. They love Ephesians 5, part of it, but then you get to this other section and it's showing you what leadership looks like. The model is Christ. And if you look at Christ, he's serving. He's leading with conviction. He has a vision, but he's humble and gentle and lowly in heart when he speaks of his heart. And then it says, husbands, your model is Christ to the church. That's challenging. (laughs) Because death is hard. Agreed? For everyone here that's married. For singles, you want to know how to practice for marriage? Submit to one another. Have reverence for Christ. Learn (laughs) mute. That's spoken from a husband who struggles like me, because singleness prepares you not for marriage, but for singleness. It does. Do what you want, when you want, how you want. Date how you want with apps to make it easy. Marriage prepares you, look, but in the same way, it doesn't make it easy. In the same way, singleness, how do you prepare for the rest of your life. Married people, how do you prepare for the rest of eternity? Laying down your life. I'm gonna stay on this for one minute. I'm just gonna preach for this section. You're like, okay, what do you do? Here's what I've learned. Not well. (laughs) Whoever has the power in the moment lays it down. That's the Christological model. At the moment he knew he had come from the father and he was going to the father, all of heaven and earth, all the authority in heaven had been granted to him. He gets up from the table, takes off his garment and washes his disciples' feet. That is our model for power. That's a freebie. You're welcome. I told you you're favored. Whenever we read scripture that doesn't resonate with how we feel about the situation in culture or in the world and in our life, we have a choice. Do we submit or do we reject? We yield our thinking, our values, our actions, our behaviors, our desires, our sense of identity to the authority of the word of God. We submit or we reject and live our own way. It's the American gospel. <clears throat> Started with Jefferson. I, I need to this is a historical fact, and we can debate the reasons he did this. That's fine. But he actually did this. Thomas Jefferson took a Bible, cut out all the all the Jesus stories that dealt with the supernatural and the miraculous. Most people think because of the humanistic worldview he had and the culture he lived in, that had a hard time viewing the miracles, including the resurrection, and he pasted it together, and it's called the Jefferson Bible. You have your version of the Bible. You just didn't cut it up. You just reject the verses that don't align with your view. May I propose to you, you need a biblical worldview with the whole of Scripture, even the verses that frustrate you and cause you to question its validity, uh, uh, its validity in this cultural norm, in this cultural moment. The Bible will be challenging to honor when it comes to your sexuality, your identity. When it comes to your view of how you date people, when you start a new relationship, will you choose to honor the view God has within the scriptures? Or will you do what you've always done, what makes you feel good? When you get married, will you choose to honor some archaic view of husband-wife relationships? Or will you follow the Christological hermeneutic? When you're parenting, will you follow TikTok stars for your parenting advice? Or will you look to the scriptures and say, raise them up in a culture of the kingdom. Train them. Don't pass them off to our youth for the hard discussions. Have the hard discussions in your life when they're littles, so that when they're that age, it's part of the process. And I know you can't control that. But were you creating a culture for early on? At some point, they have to decide, you've done your work. I'm not judging anyone. But it starts when they're little. How you handle your finances is probably our favorite way of cutting out the passages of scripture we don't like. Is it not? You're like, oh, I love Matthew chapter six, especially that part where he's like, don't worry about your life. Yeah, no worry, I'm so anxious. Do you know where that comes out of? What context that comes out of? It comes right out, right before this, there's this passage where Jesus says, the only time in scripture he names another deity. You cannot serve both God and mammon. The Aramaic word for the God of wealth, possessions and materialism. Money is uh, is how some translate, but the Aramaic word mammon is the actual word. He says, you cannot serve God and mammon, right? Treasures in heaven can't serve both. And then it goes on to the next teaching. And the assumption for Jesus is this. You as a disciple have chosen only to follow God. And if you've only fallen God, therefore, because you're not following mammon, mammon, don't worry about your life what you're going to eat, drink, what you're going to wear. Man, pagans run after those things. How can you live without anxiety? You're living with a relationship with the Father in heaven. You know where he stands in his perspective of you. The pagans don't have that luxury. They're rushing around serving the mammon God and they have to offer all their sacrifices, their time, their energy to get God to bless them. Except we know God blesses his children. And he takes care of our needs so we can live anxiety-free in the kingdom of God. Not because it feels good, but because you've chosen to eliminate the rivals. Some of you need to repent from your idolatry to mammon. You're like, oh, I love this scripture talk. Yeah, you're talking about culture. Get after it. What about your greed? What about your lack of generosity towards the church and the people of God? What about loving God's enemies? That's in there too. <laughs> what about praying for those who persecute you? Uh, time, uh. This is what we do. We make it in the image of our political ideology. We make the Bible fit our perspective for feeling culture. It's not there. Whew coming in hot. (laughs) Man, the enemy doesn't want you to engage in scripture this way. The last thing he wants you to do is, is allow the word of God to saturate your imagination and soul that you can discern the lies that are swimming around you. He wants you to stay on your phone distracted at night. He wants you to go from appointment to appointment with nothing in between, no margin for the possibility of Heavenly Father's voice whispering belovedness for no good reason other than he's delighting in you as his little girl or his little boy. He wants you to other people. He wants you to, he wants you to make enemies with his kids. The enemy wants you to make enemies with God's kids. And then be used as a tool, a prop for the kingdom of darkness. All because you don't really love the whole scriptures. You love bits and pieces of your Jeffersonian Bible. The Bible is God speaking his truth to us in human words. There's 66 books in our Bible. I, if you can't tell, I love the Bible. I love it because it actually, with the, the canonization process, the way this was formed, was done with such integrity over a long period of time. There's nothing like it in any other religion or any other ancient literature. This is one of the most beautifully well-integrous collected library of books that that has been formed for over time in history. Christianity is not a sect, of, an, of a, some guy discovering famous tablets buried and translating them out of a top hat with spectacles. It's not one angel in a cave orating the ideas of God. It is done in history as the continuation of Judaism because Christ is the, vo- the fulfillment of all of Israel and the ushering of the, of the Messiah's new age. And once and for all, it will come when God, Christ comes back and the scriptures tell one continuous story for thousands of years. And I love it because when I left the faith and came back, it was history that brought me back to faith. It was the historical process of this being held together through generations of early church life. That discerned what was divinely inspired and why it was included. It's very amazing. F.F. Bruce's book, The Canonical Process, is an extraordinary book that tells the story. It's, it's a historical book about that process. I highly recommend it. But when I read scripture, what you see in this book is 40% of it is story, 33% of it is poetry, 20, 20% for the rest. Isn't that Christ's story and poetry make up the majority of our Bible? Why would there be so much poetry? I believe it has to do with the, the reality that humanity requires the poets to speak to the things that matter most, to the conditions that were felt and experienced only through language of poetry and metaphor, that we discover the meaning of life in its fullness. The Bible is written in human language to human beings. It came at a time and place to people. Therefore, it's subject to rules of interpretation as other books. So we need to pay attention to the original audience if we're going to get this book right. The Bible is not first God's word to us. It's first God's word to those to whom it came originally. So we need to make sure we're not bringing it just to us defining its meaning, but we have to understand where it was and why and who wrote it. By the way, anyone who reads the Bible for meaning interprets it. Case in point, none of you kissed me on the cheek when you came in here today. You took Romans 16, 16, greet each other with a holy kiss, and you did not obey that passage. How you treat the scriptures affects your eternity. My point is we all interpret it. Why didn't you kiss me? Wouldn't it be appropriate? Right? I I don't know why. You've decided... Maybe you haven't read it, but you've decided that that passage is a cultural invitation command that's no longer valid today. But whatever you did to make that leap, there was a process of hermeneutics, interpreting the text. That's what it says, but it doesn't mean that today. Why? At the garden, the author's intent is our anchor for interpretation. So what the author intended it to mean to the people who received it is how we form statements like we sense the scriptures teaches this. This is a process of expository preaching and exegetical research that we as preachers, we teach here and Bill had taught me in college. And that's why we will hold to the authority of scriptures. We will live as the garden under the authority of the text. You guys good? All right, I'm gonna end with this next week. One of my teachers, so a guy named Mike Erie is going to be preaching here. Mike, some of you, he was the teaching pastor at Rock Harbor Church when I went there, I attended. And when we were sent out as a church over 14 years ago, um, he was the teaching pastor. He pastors a church in, in Tennessee and he's coming out and he's going to teach on how scripture is also for formation. Like how do we be formed by the scripture? He taught me how to read scripture. He taught me how to teach scriptures. So Pastor Bill and Pastor Mike were probably the most influential for me as a preacher. And so he's going to be here. I'm so excited for him. You don't want to miss next Sunday, but I want to give you five ideas that you can start now and then we'll end. What do we do with scripture? We read it. We study, we listen, we meditate and memorize. Some of you need to stop being so distracted on your phones. You hear this enough. If a pastor's saying it, if I'm I'm quoting a 1986 essay about Aldous Huxley and his influence on what would the future dystopian society look like, check, we're done, we've already lost. We don't need to read books because we're, we're fascinated with entertainment. Get rid of it for a while and read scripture. Don't just read a couple of passages, immerse yourself in books of the Bible. I talked about this earlier this year, I did. I read the Bible in 30 days, which I highly recommend takes about 45 minutes if you're a fast reader. Here's why I recommend it. Never have have I been more um, shaped by the imagination of scripture than through that discipline. Because you're reading large, you're reading Genesis in a sitting, Exodus in a sitting, you're reading through Chronicles, Leviticus, and you're, you're getting the whole forest, not just the trees. And some of you, you've done the, the trees for so long and you've never stepped out of that to discipline yourself for large chunks of reading. That's how they used to do it, by the way. Read out loud the, the large chunks of scripture. Some of my favorite people, N.T. Wright, Dallas Willard, they talk about this as a discipline. Dallas says memorization is the most important of all the scriptures or of all the disciplines in spiritual formation, memorizing scripture. So you study scripture. Some of you need to start practicing studying the word. Get some commentaries, get some Bible dictionaries, get on Google, start looking up the original language. I love studying scripture, it changes your perspective. Like you read Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and you're like, okay, this is great. In Hebrew, do you, how many of you know that the number seven is important yeah. in Hebrew? Do you guys know that there's seven Hebrew words for the first verse in Genesis chapter one and then 14 for the next? In Hebrew, it is absolutely amazing. So learn, you don't have to know the language, just get some tutorials, watch some YouTube videos, videos, study, do the Bible project. There's so much out there. The problem isn't that you don't have access. The problem is you're just distracted. We can't compete. Like the Bible app won't compete with TikTok. The scripture won't compete with the obsession of Amazon Prime, social media, or Zillow, you know, house pornography. (laughs) That's what it is. We laugh at the things that are most sacred to our heart, right? (laughs) Listen to the word, meditate, memorize. All right, let's pray. Can you stand with me? Would you open up your hands? And just and welcome the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> I know exactly what the enemy wants to do. He wants you to feel shame. So there's, a, some of you are feeling conviction and you don't know the difference between conviction and shame. So the Holy Spirit convicts us. The enemy brings shame. Shame is that I am bad. Conviction or guilt is I, um, I've done something wrong. And so the Holy Spirit is our, you know, a gift that empowers us towards sanctification, the process of becoming like Jesus. And right now, this is a a more important word than than I think you realize, that we have habits that we need to repent of. We have treated the scriptures in a way that does not honor our experience with the kingdom of God. We need to repent, we need to change our mind about that, change our direction. Just humble ourselves before the Lord and go, I've got it wrong. Help me now move forward. And he's met, he's going to meet you with a wave of grace and forgiveness. An ocean of grace. The other thing I think we need to repent of is the influence of culture in our life. We have treated culture as neutral rather than as a negative influence. And I think we need to return away from the cultural practices embodied in our lives, in our minds, in our habits, and move towards Christ-likeness. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information, go to garden.church. God bless you.